You're listening to Faith in Politics, presented by Helen Byrne and Rachel Allison. Coming up in Faith in Politics, we have an interview with Big Issue founder Lord John Bird. Baptist Minister Jane Day joins us for the monthly musing. And as ever, we have our rundown of this month's news. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Um, this is mine and Helen's probably final episode. Um, definitely our final episode. <laughs> yeah, well, we might we might make a we might make a subtle appearance in the September episode. But yes, um, we're both finishing at JPIT this month and moving on to other things. Yeah, a few days and counting really. So it's a very strange feeling. Yeah, and there's been a lot of reflecting done on the lovely year it has been. Seven. Yeah, and um, we're very proud of this podcast which is one thing that we did create this year and very sad to let it go I think but yeah I had my exit interview today and it was that's what I was most proud of and um, this was among my things I said because I think we can be proud of what we've done here and we've interviewed some big names and hopefully some of what we've said has resonated with our many many listeners yeah, and thank you for tuning in. Um, throughout the last couple of months, we've, it's been really nice to get the lovely comments from people um, mm-hmm. and just to see people enjoying the stuff that we're doing as yeah. much as we've enjoyed making it. Exactly. Um, yeah, but how's your week been anyway, <coughs> Helen? Um, it's been nice. I'm easing myself back into life very slowly after a holiday. So I have a severe case of holiday brain, um, which I'm muddling my way through at the minute. I'm kind of half on leave and half not on leave. Um, so I was away for a week in Budapest with my sister and some friends. We were at a music festival. And sometimes you just need to get out of London and wear glitter on your face and just run around the fields. So I think it was it was great. Yeah, it was just exactly what the what the doctor ordered. Oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> um oh this week I've I finished JP a bit early um, to go off and work in the civil service. So I've had my first week in the heart of the civil service which um, has been very exciting, if a little overwhelming. Lots of fast-paced work, lots of exciting and, stuff going and through. so secret that she can't even tell you what department <laughs> <laughs> She told me that last month. So, um, we've already asked for secrets, and needless to say. Nothing um, that she can tell me, let alone stuff that we can broadcast to our many, many listeners. So, um, so yes, yeah, it's an exciting new stage in our life, and um, I think all of us in the team who are leaving are quite excited about what the future holds for us. Um, and so, yeah, um, so on to the news, I would say. Mm. Um, do you want to start us off, Helen? Uh, yes, well, it was recently announced that the UN Special Rapporteur um, will be visiting Britain. Um, it's quite rare that the UN Special Rapporteur deigns to visit very developed countries. It is quite notable and it's an interesting mandate that he's come on. The visit will be in November and um, anyone who is inclined to make a submission for any reason at all can do so and before Friday the 14th of September at 6 o'clock. So basically, the whole idea is that the visit will focus on the interlinkages between poverty and the realisation of human rights in the UK. Um, The UN Special Rapporteur obviously is meant to be as independent as they possibly can be. So what's quite interesting about the terms of reference on which he has come is that they do sound very explicitly politicised. So the word austerity is mentioned. He wants to explore how necessary austerity has been. Did it achieve its aims? Um, Is it something that should continue? And whether or not the government have kind of taken sufficient account, he says, of the impact on vulnerable groups and have they reflected these kind of efforts to minimise the negative effects for those groups and, and individuals? So it promises to be a very interesting visit indeed. There will be a large focus on universal credit, which is something 
obviously the JFIT are very interested in. So what do you think he might find, Philip Alston? Oh, I don't really know. Well, I think looking at the work that we've done in JPIT, I think he's going to find quite a lot of things and failings on so many parts. Um, I think what would be most interesting um, is to see what an outside voice, and he's come from outside, he's come from the UN, coming in to see this reality sees. Because I think you're when you're in the political situation, in the political sphere, exactly. you just think of these things as this is what happens, and you can kind of get kind of um, normalised into it. So yeah. as much as we, working at JPIT and that kind of thing, we know how awful it is and can be for some people within the system. I still think we still are quite norm- normalised to it because we talk about it so much because we just know it happens. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting somebody else coming in. Obviously they'll have done their research and everything, mm-hmm. but coming in and seeing it with fresh eyes rather yeah. than living it day to day. Yeah, a fresh pair of eyes is exactly it. Something that really caught my eye in the terms of reference um, was that Philip Olsen wanted to explore kind of the digital divide when it comes to universal credit and what that has meant for the administration of UC and whether or not people can access it. And that to me has always just been a really interesting point that so well typifies the idea that people who write policy are not people who are in any way affected by policy. And I think that's a conclusion that he would more or less agree with kind of having, you know, gleaned from the um, the terms of reference. And I think what's what's really important here is to stress that it's it's firstly it's about making sure that we have a diverse group of people who work in policy, but also about that because in reality we're not going to get a fully diverse group of people who represent everybody who work in policy because mm-hmm. by their nature they're not going to be in poverty, for example. Yeah. So it's about having good reference groups. So looking at the Poverty Truth Commission, looking at having good talking shots so people can talk about whether this will work mm-hmm. um, and having really good representation on boards and things like yeah. that. So I think a lot of people, I, I had a discussion with my sister the other day actually about, well, you know, the Secretary of State should have some something to do with the place they have. And to an extent, I agree with that. But actually, that person is then still removed from that place. Mm-hmm. They may once have been in poverty and know how it feels, but they're actually then removed from that. Exactly. And so they're not living through the situation mm-hmm. as it currently is. People in education are not living as teachers. Yeah. They're still politicians. Mm-hmm. And so what they deemed five years ago is probably not what's the case now. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a really interesting thing there, and I hope that comes out in yeah. the UN's discussion. I, I do have hope that it will. And what was stated very clearly in the press release that set out all the terms and conditions was that Philip Olsen wasn't just there to meet with ministers and civil society groups, he wanted to have conversations with people who had experienced extreme poverty themselves. And I think if our ministers did that, we might have a slightly different welfare system than we currently have, but let's not speculate too much. <laughs> yeah. We haven't had the report just yet, and I will read it with great interest, as I'm sure we all will hear. But what else is going on then? Well, I think the other big world. Yeah, I mean, the other big thing that's going on at the moment is um, what's going Well, I mean, there's always a story about Donald Trump. But this week, I think there's been more and more talk about impeachment and real, honest discussion about impeachment and Trump addressing it himself. I mean, he said today, impeach me and the markets crash. It's quite... It's a lot of defensive language. Usually, it's quite dismissive. Mm-hmm. But what he's sort of saying is that there's... Um, 
the the these two people who have been um, found guilty of committing crimes, um, who are very close to Trump, um, that could you know in inevitably lead to some kind of impeachment. Um, we're looking at the money that was the hush money that was given to Stormy Daniels. Mm. Um, we're looking at sort of campaign fraud and Russian interventions, and it's just story after story after story. And the fact with this one on the money paid to Stormy Daniels, um, he's become quite defensive rather than dismissive. Is quite interesting. Um, and this idea that like he's gone along with this. Um, the you know the markets will crash. I mean, I'm he thinks he's done this amazing job, and the markets have taken an upturn. Mm. But will they crash if he gets impeached? I think it's an interesting question, and they're probably I'm sure that you know a lot more about this than I would. But I part of me wonders how much control the president actually does have over an extremely globalized economy, and how much of it is to do with perhaps being in the right place at the wrong place at the right or wrong time. I think I mean what's interesting. Oh, so he's made for a less globalized trade policy, really, from what I've gathered, um, and, and and many people are very happy about that. And that has protectionism that he yeah, promised, and that has you know made the market put the market into a better place, arguably in the US. But eventually, that's not going to work out. And then, and I and I mean, if he goes, Mike Pence takes over. It's not if he goes. There's a there's a election. Mm-hmm. The system is the vice president takes yeah. his place, and exactly. in a sense, I'm more scared about that. I mean, Trump is a bit mad; doesn't really know what he's talking about, um, and that's quite scary in one sense. But in another sense, like Mike Pence knows exactly what he wants to do, and he's probably more right wing than Trump, if we're being honest. Um, mm. Not even if we're being honest, he is more right wing than yeah. Trump, probably. Um, and so I think that's more of a a worry for me. I mean, will he be impeached? I mean, I think what is different about this particular, you know, this recent antic of President Trump is that this is, it is illegal to commit electoral fraud, whereas, you know, when he's like buddying up with Russia or, you know, saying something particularly controversial, there isn't a question about the legality of it necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, it's a difficult thing to speculate. And as much as this is a bit of a side point, what... Just what speaks to me about this a lot is this whole Stormy Daniels affair. I think Baron Trump, Trump's son with Melania, had literally just been born. And to me, it just seems, it just highlights how questionable a character he is and how kind of little regard he has for, you know, his marriage. That this seemed like an acceptable thing to do so soon after his child was born. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think... The problem, but you know, he he still has a lot of support out there, and um, for what he's doing, he's still going on rallies, he's still running up support all over the place, and so, yeah, will he be impeached? Will there be that want for him to be impeached by Congress, mm-hmm. um, which is you know, um, full of um, Republicans? You know, will they want to impeach their own president? I mean, he's on in stormy waters, but I I'm <laughs> stormy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's quite a bit. Um, he is in um, yeah, turbulent, turbulent waters. And so it'd be interesting to see what happens and how much more defensive he gets or whether he starts to get dismissive. But the language change is interesting and it's kind of a watch that space situation. Very much but, so. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, so next we go on to um, Jane, who is a Baptist minister, 
He's also mission partner in South Africa at the moment for our monthly meeting. There was a story of a small rural congregation which for the first time ever appointed a woman minister. And this particular congregation had a tradition whereby the two senior stewards always took the new minister out for a day's fishing as a friendly greeting and a way of getting acquainted. With some trepidation, they extended the invitation to their woman minister. So they went fishing and once they had rowed their boat out into the middle of the lake, she realised that she had left her rod on the shore. Apologising, she stepped over the side of the boat, walked across the surface of the water, picked up a rod and started back. One steward turned to the other and said, now isn't that just like a woman forgetting her rod like that? The woman, of course, walked on water and yet no mention of that was made. So we might conclude from that story that women and their gifting is kept hidden or we may make other conclusions. Here in South Africa, the country commemorates Women's Month during August as a tribute to more than 20,000 women who marched to the Union buildings on 9th of August 1956 to petition against legislation that required African persons to carry the pass. The pass was an identification document which restricted a black South African's freedom of movement under apartheid. So the women staged a protest and since 1956, South Africa has celebrated Women's Day annually and sought to raise the profile of women. Today, I want to contrast our earlier story with a story that can be found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. It's a story of a woman who had been mostly hidden. Let's imagine the scene. It's a holy place where the community gathers. Jesus is front and centre stage, teaching and instructing the group. It's a solemn moment and a woman slips in quietly. She is nobody important and for almost two decades she has slipped through the world bent over with a terrible handicap. All this woman sees is the floor and the ground. And maybe she went in as would be her pattern like any other time to listen and sit quietly and not wanting to draw attention to herself. But Jesus notices this woman and he could have carried on teaching, but of course he doesn't. He stops and he notices and when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she stood up straight and began to praise God. Imagine how it felt to stand up straight, having been bent over, to suddenly look around and see faces instead of the ground. It's quite simply a brilliant story because a new way opens up for this woman and this woman knows whom to thank. Both our stories give us much to ponder. Bent over by many forces, this story encourages people to stand up straight and to hear the invitation, woman or man, you are set free. Let each one of us notice today the women who are bent over by many forces and instead of perhaps always depending on her, consider what you might do so that the women you know may experience even more freedom today. John Bird was born in a London Irish family in what he described as the slums of Notting Hill in 1946. 
He drifted in and out of care, young offenders, prisons and homelessness for much of his early life and didn't learn to read or write until he was 16. He met Gordon Roddick, later of Body Shop fame, when he was sleeping rough in Edinburgh in his early 20s. In New York in 1990, Roddick was sold a magazine by a homeless man. The incident inspired him to encourage Lord Bird to start the big issue. The social enterprise has now been working towards the same of dismantling poverty by creating opportunity for over 25 years. And Big Issue Invest, its investment arm, invests in 320 social enterprises and charities every year. In 1970, Lord Bird worked as a dishwasher in the Lord's Canteen. He returned to the house 35 years later as a crossbench life peer in recognition of his work on homelessness. Uh, so when I met you, Lord Bird, you introduced yourself to me as a Catholic Marxist. Um, could you maybe tell me a bit about why you feel that Marxist ideas are relevant today and how that relates to your Catholicism? Well, to me, having been brought up as a Catholic, a cradle Catholic, uh, you know, I didn't have any choice. I mean, the luck of the draw, yeah. you know, you're born <laughs> and that's it. Um, and... Unlike most of the people in my family and in the community that I lived in, which was very underclass, you know, lots of drink, lots of violence, lots of crime, lots of poverty, lots of slumminess, and then later on I was in the prison system, I really took the words of Jesus very seriously, even though I then every now and then went out and shoplifted or stole cars or smashed up, you know, stations and so I was a kind of combination of good and bad but I had this real passion for the idea of of standing up against bullies and treating the weak especially girls and I didn't have any sisters and I had a mother who was violated by my father and I had to watch that um, so I became a bit of a kind of knight on on a you know on a white horse and I associated that with my Catholicism. So in the early stages of my life, in spite of all the stuff that was happening, I had this kind of sense that things, people could be better, or I could be better, or the world could be better. And then, unfortunately, I went through a stage where I became a kind of racist, anti-Semite. Uh, I went through, a, when I left a boys' prison uh, that I was in, and, and a reformatory, I then went into kind of, free fall. And then I kind of came out of that when I was hiding from the police, again, having done some wrong things, in, in Paris and met a Marxist girl who I then wanted to woo. So I, I started to listen to all the stuff she was going on about international solidarity and I was saying that's rubbish and, you know, the world was bad because of, you know, capitalism, you know, all these Jewish capitalists and and she kind of really beat me up mentally. And I ended up as this kind of Marxist. And then I realised, I then joined a Marxist group for maybe 20 years as a supporter. And I realised that there was an enormous similarity between Christ, what Christ was trying to do, and what the Marxist movement was trying to do, which was to, first of all, recognise that the poorest amongst us are, are not just the people who are left behind, but there are the people who are denied the spontaneous creativity and the opportunities 
I'd in the meanwhile become a, quite a successful painter. Uh, I mean, successful in the sense I got into art school and I sold some of my work. So I, I was kind of lifted by out of out of penury and crime. And I found that I was basically putting Marxism and, and socialism and, and, and you know, the work, the work of Jesus in particular. Um, I've never really got on with religions in the sense that um, I can call myself a Catholic because that's what I was born, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm a kind of Christian and there are certain things I like about the church and there are things I loathe about the church. Well, don't we all? Yeah, <laughs> and I certainly don't like the idea of, of be believing that if you go to church and put the money in the, in the plate and do your Holy Communion or whatever you do, you are in a sense fulfilling the ambitions that Jesus had for all of us. Um, so some of our listeners will have tuned in today because they're interested in faith and some will have tuned in because they're just much more interested in what the founder of the big issue has to say and maybe they're not interested in faith and what it can offer them very much at all. Um, why, why should they be? Why should they be interested in faith? Well, you see, to me, faith is a bit like... It's about the benefit of the doubt. I have got to the age of 72... Uh, almost stumbled towards it because I've done every conceivable thing wrong to my body and my mind and I've always tended to go in the wrong direction and end up in the right place. So everything's been done tangentially. And I don't think that it is enough to feed people. I don't think it is enough to equip people with somewhere to live. I don't think it's enough to fill them full of consumer goods uh, and I think that if one feels that homelessness or poverty can be solved by the material goods that you lay before people or give them the opportunity, I think then you move into this really crass world where all you are, uh, you go from one, uh, one distraction to the next, one piece of petty stimulation to the next. And I think we need as human beings, to develop a spiritual life. And I want a spiritual life for the poorest among us. And I want that spiritual life to be a life that, even if you're an atheist or a believer, that you actually believe in the transcendental power of nature and of the world that we live in. And it's so beautiful and we need to do something very profound to, to make sure it lasts. So therefore I believe that, that I, I couldn't live, if I thought that this was just it, I wouldn't want to live. I'd immediately go on the drink and I would start smoking roll-ups again as I gave up 20 years ago. Uh, and I would be on every conceivable drug <coughs> imaginable that would take me to the top of the trees. Uh, because there would be no point in living. I have five children, I have three grandchildren, and I look at them and I know that if they're ever going to do anything, they're going to have to be creative and they're going to have to be spiritual and they're going to have to stand up against this enormous offensive which has directed us 
from every consumeristic corner of our lives. Everything is turned into a, the commodification of human life is, is terrible. And actually, the worse mankind is to each other, the more I believe in um, the power of Jesus and the power of, of God. Uh, so you have, <clears throat> you have said, you said in your maiden speech that you were once aggressively anti-charity and you reject the label of the big issue as a charity. You consider it a social enterprise or, or a social business. Um, and indeed, when there are hundreds of charities working with homeless <clears throat> people, and we've seen an 169% rise in homelessness in the last seven, eight years alone, how is it that you feel that we can create the structural change that we need to, to fight homelessness? And what do you think is driving the increase as well? Well, um, you see, uh, when I started The Big Issue, uh, I was praised by all sorts of people, including the body shop, my supporters and sponsors, uh, as being a person who really knew how to think outside the box. So if you look at, I mean, when we started, there were 501 homeless organisations in London alone in 1991. Not one of them gave the homeless the chance of making their own money. They gave them everything. They gave them everything from condoms to showers. They supplied them with all their earthly things, but they never, ever gave them the chance of making their own money so that they could be decriminalised, get out of begging, get out of shoplifting, get out of abusing themselves, selling their bodies. And I came along, and I was that person who was thinking outside the box. And, and, and since then, there have been a lot of people thinking outside the box. The real problem is that the thinking in the box is crap. It really is crap. The government is a kind of box. The political system that we run is a series of boxes, and it doesn't work. If you talk to the average minister about poverty, they will always tell you about the latest pilot that they're doing or the latest project. Everybody is hyperventilated about poverty, but no one ever stops and says, OK, why is it that we have an ecosystem of social failure? Why is it that we produce the oxygen of poverty? Why is it that we use social security rather than, uh, uh, rather than social opportunity? Why is social security actually more about social insecurity? Why is it that you we live in a world where we... We fail 37% of our children at school, and that 37% make up virtually the whole of the prison population. You go into a prison, you say to a young man or a young woman, how did you do at school? They say, I didn't. You go to the A&E department of the hospital across the way there, and you talk to the doctors. They will tell you that most of the people, that have the real problems, are the people who are on the low wage, on the... Um, on the, the zero hours tolerance, uh, zero hours uh, contracts, or they're the people who uh, are just about managing on social security and all that. So, and those are the people who haven't done well at school. So we've got this absolutely asinine, mad system where we spend in the region of about one and a half trillion pounds a year on running the government that's the, you know if you include the government's income and its borrowings 
but it comes out at almost a hundred one and a half trillion pounds and most of that is spent in a kind of locking the stable door after the horse has bolted and to me it's about it has to be about prevention you can create all the charities you want you can look at the charities and you can look upon them as a galaxy of all these brilliant little lights they don't work together they don't converge their energies together they don't converge and dim and con converge their energies to dismantle poverty they are all little individuals and i'm one of them and until we break this incredibly mind-forged series of manacles that holds us back from unifying our actions. I mean, a government should be about getting rid of poverty, and that means they've got to stop and think, what the hell are we doing? Why is it that it doesn't matter with whether Jeremy Corbyn gets in or whether even, you know, out, whoever you can imagine. It doesn't matter who can get in. That If the system is broken, then the system will carry on reproducing and producing and producing um, poverty. The reason that we've had a vast increase in, in homelessness is because all of the safety nets that were created in the 90s and the early part of the century have gradually been disappeared dissipated, misused, but largely disappeared, largely because of, uh, of austerity. And the real problem with austerity is I've never met such a boneheaded bunch of people as I've met in the, the realms of those who go on about austerity. Mm -hmm. Because austerity is so expensive. It is much, much more expensive than we run. can afford. We cannot afford austerity. If Mr. Corbyn does get into power, I hope he immediately gets rid of um, austerity. I believe very strongly um, that the best way to sort out poverty is to declare war on it. In the same way as we declared so war what, on... So what makes declaring war on poverty more than a slogan? If we're to think inside the box, and if the government doesn't work, if there's structural change that we can't assail, what calls for hope is there at all? In the past, well, you've called the, the Commons a confederacy of amateurs. You've said that the government doesn't work. Would you stand by that comment? Do you think that's fair? And if I that's think, the case, think, what do we need to change? I think the government doesn't work. I mean, I don't think governments work. I think they are an approximation of an ideal at the best. When I say declare war, that means, and I'm using this as a metaphor, in 1939, we declared war on Nazi Germany. And therefore, what we did was we borrowed the next 70 years to fight that war. The war was not paid off for until the middle of the 2006, 10 years ago was when it was. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying we have to borrow from the future and people say, oh, yeah, but that means that the next generation is lumbered with a load of money and a load of debts. Well, I'm, I spent most of my life paying for the first, Second World War and paying for parts of the First World War. That's what happens if you live in a, in a supposed democracy. You, one generation, in order for there to be other generations, have to sacrifice. And this gen, the generation I lived through as I said, didn't pay it all off until 2006. So what I'm saying is the money needs to be spent now on education, 
it needs to be spent now on the fact that our, that we live in a in a where a world where we uns we produce unskilled human beings. If you spell if you produce an unskilled human being through the through the state education system, then what you do is you produce somebody who will never ever make it in life, and they will become a drain on the rates. Can I just make another point? When I went to see David Cameron in 2006 or whatever, when he'd just become the leader of the Conservative Party before he became uh, Prime Minister in the coalition government, I said to him, how much did it cost to produce you? How much did it cost your family to produce the posh guy that you are running this party of posh people? And I said, I, th I reckon it was about a third of a million. And he said, no, it cost a quarter of a million. They'd worked it all out. All those schools, all those silly jackets and, you know, the hunting and all that stuff and the four-wheel drives and the horses and the university, all that stuff that you need to produce a posh guy to run a posh party, quarter of a million pound. At that time, we'd done a survey of a few hundred of our big issue vendors and on average, most of them had been, 87% of them had been in local authority care for 10 years. That's over a million pounds. So you produce, it cost you a million pounds to produce the poorest in society, and yet it costs a quarter of a million to produce the most privileged in society. And in my opinion, that shows something's not working. Lord Brett, thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to Faith in Politics with Helen Byrne and Rachel Allison.